Today we are coming to the last week known as Passion Week, and we want to look at some of the events on various days of Passion Week to try to finish the structure of the life of Christ so that we can somewhat understand what is happening in regard to that. Last evening we were looking at the uh, resurrection of Lazarus, a mighty miracle that Jesus performed. Uh, Lazarus, who had been four days dead, raised from the dead. The important thing to understand in relationship to Lazarus as we come on the last week is this, that Lazarus is the reason, the resurrection of Lazarus is the reason for the crowds being out on Triumphal Entry Sunday. Now you'll say, how do you know that? Well, let's look at a reference in the Gospel of John, chapter 12 and verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. That's a very important verse. How many of you have ever noticed that verse in Scripture before? That's one of the kind you just pass over, you know. It's just a little historical incident. But it gives us the reason for the great number that were out crying, Hosanna, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. If it would not have been for the resurrection of Lazarus, the stones would have had to cry out because there would have been no crowd. The reason the crowd went out to meet him was because of the resurrection of Lazarus, that great miracle that the Lord performed. And now in verse uh, 37 of Luke chapter 19, we read, As he was now drawing near at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King. Notice that term. Blessed be the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What's that sound like to you? That's the birth. That's what the angels were singing when the king of Israel came into this world. And now all the crowds are saying it. How do you think the disciples are feeling now? Yeah, finally we win. Uh, just before they had been saying, Lord, are there few who will be saved? And then comes this great miracle, the resurrection of Lazarus. And uh, they're coming into the city of Jerusalem, and the crowds are there singing just what was said at the beginning of the Lord's life here on earth when the angels had that same course from heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Were they frustrated now? They were really losing it. Pharisees in the Gospel of John, I'll just allude to this, said, You see that you can do nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And after that discouraging Galilean ministry, when they all left, and he says to his disciples, will you go away also? And after the Judean ministry, where they were fleeing lest he be stoned. After the Perean ministry, when they were saying, Lord, are there few who will be saved? It looks now like the tide is turning. Everything's coming the way of the Lord at this point. When he entered Jerusalem, well, let me read what he says in Luke. 
And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over saying, Would that even today you knew the things that made for peace, but now they are hid from your eyes, for the day shall come upon you when your enemies will cast up a bank about you and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and dash you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And the Lord recognizes here that, Yes, ask of me, I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, but there is that suffering servant of the Lord. And uh, soon another scene will be taking place. He enters Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. This is Sunday, Palm Sunday as we know it, Triumphal Entry Sunday. He looked around at everything, and it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Who was at Bethany? Well, it's just like it used to be. There's Mary and Martha and surprise, <laughs> Lazarus again. They thought they gained a bedroom, <laughs> but they didn't. There he was back in his room. And the Lord was there with all the twelve, it says. The whole crowd was there. Wouldn't you like to have been plugged into that conversation that was taking place that night? They must have been excited. Uh, these are some of the questions. You know, the, the life of the Lord is a very abbreviated life, really. Uh, even the discourses and conversations, if we would act them out, would be very abrupt. They're very much edited. Short sentences, it's over in 10 minutes. The messages take five minutes. I have 50 minutes. And most of them you can read through in five minutes in the Bible. All of the discourses. A lot more. A lot more than's recorded. John tells us that. If it all be written down, all the books in the world could not contain the acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they, they are there Sunday night. The Lord had looked around Jerusalem. He went into the temple and looked around. What do you think he saw? Now, note that uh, he'll go back to Jerusalem on Monday, and the primary event of Monday is the cleansing of the temple. When Jesus went into the temple that Sunday night, what do you think he saw? What did he observe? Anyone? The money changers. Probably the same one he had seen right at the beginning of his public ministry when he went into the temple and cleansed it the first time. He saw people coming to worship with the system of religion making money out of that worship exchanging the coin of the realm for shekels for temple worship, selling sacrifices at inflated prices, making a business out of the work of God. God hates that. And Jesus says, freely receive, freely give. No strings attached to the gospel, isn't it? It is a free message. And one of the things God hates the most is making a business out of the free gospel. There's a word that's come into the world for that. You remember when Simon the sorcerer wanted to have the power of the Holy Spirit so he could sell it? Simony became a, a word in our language. And Jesus sees all that. Now, when he puts his head down on the pillow that night, what is he reenacting? Do you do things like this? You plan the next day, think over the events, get everything in order. Well, when Monday came, he had a course of action. 
gets up early Monday, they return to the temple. Where are you in your Bibles right now? John, it's not going to help. Okay. Let's go to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, verse 18. In the morning as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. I like that. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves only. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Why did he do that to the fig tree? It's a symbol. And it's a symbol of the fruitlessness of what? Of Israel over his three years of ministry. He had been thinking about that. Uh, he came into the temple Sunday night, triumphal entry, Palm Sunday night, looks around, and he sees everything going on as it was. He comes back in, and what he had desired of Israel was fruit. Remember, John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. They didn't do it. And he sees a fig tree, and he curses it. And it withers up. And you know what's in his mind as a result of that. And now he strides into the temple. And unless you realize that there are sequences of events and chronologies, you may think that this is a, another account of the same event. But the first cleansing of the temple was early on in his ministry. It's in the column of preparation. Before he even got settled into the evangelization, he had cleansed the temple. And now after three years of ministry in Galilee and Judea and Perea, he comes back to that temple and nothing has changed. Official Judaism has not budged in spite of all the ministry and the miracles and the teachings of the Lord Jesus. They maintain their outward facade of religious activity without any reality. Now there's a lesson in that for all of us, isn't there? It wasn't the fault of the teaching. It wasn't a, a fault of the example of the teacher. It was not a fault of anything, but the people had settled in to an empty form of religion without any reality to it. That's an easy thing to do, isn't it? It'll be as easy as uh, breaking bread again. And in that uh, moment of quiet and calm, don't you love the Lord's Supper? A peaceful, restful moment. How easy it is for our mind to just wander off into the distant shadows of our thinking and not be focused, not be real. Have any of you had a trouble with that ever? Oh, we all do. And we can sit and say, boy, these Jews aren't real. And I turn around and say, you know, wonder how real I am sometimes. Isn't it true? So easy to slip into the external without a real, vital, living relationship with God. And Jesus comes into the temple and, and sees once again this empty form of religion. And he does what he did before. We think of Jesus, meek and mild. Well, he was always controlled, but he was not always very mild. And here is another of these incidents. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. 
He overturned the tables of the money changers. Can you imagine that man sitting down there? He's got a little spectacle, probably a green visor, wouldn't it? <laughs> all the piles of coin here, all the Roman denarii, and, and here are the shekels, and he looks up for the next customer, and he goes, Oh, no, I've been here before. <laughs> you know. And Jesus comes up and, and takes that table and just throws it over, and the coins are, are rolling in every direction. Began to drive out those who sold. How does he drive them out? In the earlier instant, you remember he made a whip of cords? He was standing there just watching, got all these loose strings of cord, put them together, went over to the animals and got them moving. How do you, how do you think he did that? I think he go over there and say, uh, would you bulls please start moving? How do you think he got them going? Hey, hit him with the whip. What else did he do? Shout it. Now, is there anybody bold enough to try to give us an imitation of that? I do this to the young people. I just want you to, to get a feel for what it was really like. This isn't uh, the greatest story ever told. Animals, would you move, please? <laughs> That's the way. How'd he do it? Some, some young person usually has no inhibition. How'd he do it? Let's hear the sound. Go ahead, any? Here to crack it a whip? Oh, there we go. We finally, somebody came through. Have you ever thought of Jesus making that kind of noise in your life? But he did. Buddy animals are all over the place. The turtle doves are flapping their wings, you know, and they're flying up in the air. The money's rolling all over the place. Do you think he's a little upset? The Lord Jesus, unlike us, when we act, we must say, we must be calm. Wait until everything simmers down. Now, the Lord let it build. He's looking around. He's grieved. He's righteously angry. He's not out of control. But this, this anger is building and, and he strides forward and grabs that table and throws it down and the money goes all over. And the animals are on their way. And he cries out, You shall not make my father's house a den of iniquity, a place of business. Now the lesson, the spiritual lesson that we learn out of this is Israel had not moved in all of his ministry. He had not broken through that bubble of uh, uh, external facade. They still would rather have the traditions than the reality of the Messiah. The ministry had been rejected. The official statement is, we are happy where we are. Let us alone. From the beginning, they sought to put him to death. And they still sought to do that. How do you think the disciples are feeling? Boy, he's claiming the territory. The temple is ours now. This is the seat of government. If you look at your chart, you will find that Tuesday is a very busy day. It's the last day of the Lord Jesus in the temple. He has confrontation with every group and wins every battle. He defeats the Pharisees, the Sadducees. The lawyers come and uh, come close to salvation in his uh, response to them. 
Trick questions are asked. He responds to them accurately and then turns his guns on the Pharisees and, and blows them out of the saddle. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You cross land and sea to make a proselyte to Judaism and he's twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's strong language. He wins the day on Tuesday. Tuesday is the day of the Olivet Discourse. The discourse that shocks the disciples. They say, Lord, look at these beautiful stones of the temple. And what they are doing is anticipating the time of ruling with the Lord Jesus Christ because it seems like they have the upper hand now. He says, you see all those stones? Not one of them is going to be left upon another. And they leave the temple area, go down the Valley Kedron, up to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus goes that great discourse that relates to the coming tribulation period. Corresponds to some of the teachings that you see in the book of Daniel concerning that last week of Daniel's 70, 70 weeks. It is in this period of Tuesday that the parable that Evan rehearsed to us earlier takes place. And I'd like you to turn there, now that we have the big picture of where the life of Christ is going, and uh, look at Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 and verse 33. This is a Tuesday event. This is one of the times he is confronting the Pharisees, and he's going to tell them a story and then ask a question about it. Verse 33, he says, Here another parable. There was a householder who planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and let it out to tenants and went into another country. And when the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruits. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now that's the story. Jesus says to the Pharisees, Now I have a question based on that story. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? The Pharisees answer, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus says, right answer. You get an A for that. Have you never read in the scripture the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Enough of this rejection, he says. Now I'm going to do some rejecting. I reject you. The kingdom of God 
is taken from you. I have said to you in Galilee, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And you walked away from it. I have said in Judea, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. You tried to stone me. I have said to you in Perea, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And you seek to kill me. I have come to your temple again. And you do what you always have done. Now I'm telling you something. The stone which the builders rejected, you builders of Israel. I'm acting. And I'm going to take away the offer of the kingdom. And I'm going to give it to another nation. And again, would somebody uh, take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 and read that for us, please. 1 Peter 2, 9. Back up to about verse 7 and read that context for us, would you? Now, now listen to the parallelism between what we're going to hear read and what was said in this story. Go ahead. Unto you, therefore, who believe the expression, but unto them who are disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same that Isn't that interesting? It is this event that Peter has in mind when he is writing First Peter. It is not that he is quoting the rock passages from Isaiah and the psalm. He is quoting the Lord quoting that. And it's this time when the Lord says, I'm taking this kingdom from you, and I'm going to give it to another nation. You remember that verse? You are that holy nation. You are that people of God that was not a people of God. That is the church. He is saying, I'm going to take the offer of the kingdom from you, in the form of a literal earthly political kingdom and offer God's rule over his people to another people in another form. Now, I expanded that verse considerably there. But this is what is happening. He has come to say, I'm offering a literal earthly political kingdom with direct rule. I'll rule from Jerusalem. The millennial will be here. No, you don't want that. Okay, I take that from you. And I'm going to offer the kingdom in a different form. What's the different form? The church, right. Ruled over by the head of the church, Jesus Christ, on a local level by the local government of that church being under shepherds of our head, Bishop Head Shepherd. That's the form of the church, uh, of his kingdom that he's offering presently. I take it from you this way. I'm going to offer it in a different way. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is this. Blindness is a part, is come to Israel, that blessing might come to the Gentile world. Ephesians tells us that that middle wall of partition is broken down, where there will be not Jew or, or Gentile, but one new man in Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, the church. That's how he's ruling presently. And at the end of his life here on the Tuesday, the end of his life here on earth and the offer of the kingdom, he is saying, that's it, folks. You said no one time too many. And you'll not see me again till you see me coming in power and glory. 
Now, he'll come back to that theme when he's being confronted in his crucifixion time. Now, I hope that makes more sense to us now than it did at the beginning when I just mentioned that. Are there some questions? Uh, do you need to have anything cleared up in that regard? Be glad to respond to that. Yes? Okay, that's a very good question, and that's, that's crucial. Uh, a large part, the large part of Christendom would say this. I'll be very blunt with you here. They will say that now all of the promises made to Israel are being fulfilled in a spiritualized way in the church. And there is no literal kingdom coming. What you see is what it's going to be until the end of time. And they will say, based on the First Peter 2.9, look, that's a quote from, from Hosea that referred to Israel. You are not a people of God, but now you are the people of God. Clearly that was made in reference to Israel in the book of Hosea. And now it's being made in reference to the church. Now the church is fulfilling the promises made to Israel. Now, the reason I can't go that way is because of the unconditional covenant that God made with David where he says you will have an eternal house and throne and kingdom and as long as there are stars in the sky the moon the sun I will not recant on that promise I will bring you back to the land and though you be scattered I'll bring you back and it's all the teaching of the Old Testament talks about the scattering of Israel its dispersion it's being sent out, but then coming back into the land to be the chief chief nation. Books like the book of Zechariah, the end of Isaiah, all those that relate to the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel. Now, those folk who say that the promises are made in a spiritualized way, fulfilled in the church, have a double hermeneutic. Isn't that terrible? How many of you would like to have a double hermeneutic? Well, <laughs> all that means is they have two ways of interpreting Scripture, particularly in the area of prophecy. All of us interpret fulfilled prophecy literally. Does anybody understand what I just said? Then? Yes. Okay. When it says Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be born in Bethlehem of Ephrata, that's literal. There's a happy birthday to Jesus. He was born there December 25th in a snowstorm. <laughs> okay. But you see, that's literal fulfillment. A prophecy that the Messiah is going to be born in a specific city, he is born there. A prophecy that he is going to spend some time in Egypt. Out of Egypt I have called my child. Okay? You see where I'm going with those Understand how they're literally fulfilled? We believe in a literal fulfillment of the prophecies concerning his crucifixion. His hands are pierced. He hangs on a tree. That's literally fulfilled. We believe in the literal fulfillment of a virgin birth concept. There it is in Isaiah 7, 14. You come over into the New Testament, it literally happens. So we have a a whole string of prophecies that have been fulfilled literally. Now we come to the unfulfilled prophecies, yet future. 
the amillennialists will have them fulfilled in a spiritualized way. The prophecy says in Ezekiel, you're going to be brought back to the land and this is where the tribes are going to live and the temple is going to be rebuilt and sacrifices will be re-offered and uh, all of this will be in place again and, and uh, the Messiah will rule and Zechariah tells us that there's going to be a king priest that sits on the throne and holiness is going to prevail over the earth. And it tells us in Isaiah that the uh, lamb will lie down with the line, not in the line. Prepositions are very important, you know. Big difference. There will be peace, and the desert will bloom as a rose. Well, the amillennialists will say, that's all happening now in the church. Well, let's go to the zoo and see if you really believe it. Now, see, they spiritualize it. What that means is a time of peace. You have peace in your heart like animals getting along. Uh, your life blooms beautifully before God because you're in his kingdom and you understand. But that's a spiritualized interpretation that is different than the way you interpreted the already fulfilled prophecies. And I suggest to you that's inconsistent. We know how God fulfilled the specific promises. Literally. And we believe the unfulfilled promises will be fulfilled in the same way. Hence a literal earthly political kingdom. Long answer to a short question. I still see a question mark there. Okay, no, that is the, uh, we have to go back at that point to what I established in all the enunciations. What kind of kingdom were they talking about? All those things that relate to the literal kingdom. Now John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, repent, the kingdom is at hand. What kingdom? Well, the one he had been prepared for. And then you go through the steps of, Re re receive that kingdom. No, not in Galilee. No, not in Judea. No, not in Perea. And then I'll take it away. We'll have a different thing that I'm going to offer, which is in fact happened. That's how I come at it. Okay. Now that's that's big. Que that's big questions there. But not solely from that verse. No, no. That no. That's why I referred to all the other kinds of things that talk about a literal earthly, Isaiah, Zechariah, all those promises that your literal earthly kingdom doesn't hang on just one or two verses. It's throughout the whole Old Testament. And uh, the connection with that is seen in the Annunciations particularly that demonstrate that's the kingdom. It's a continuation. It's a resurgence of the nation of Israel with an offer of the king. That's what's the struggle. Israel can come to the fore again. But they say, no, let us alone. Let us be under Rome. It's a different form of the church that measures back in time. Right. Now, do you remember the overhead that had the different forms of how God rules over his people? It is not odd that he changes forms. He does that regularly throughout history. Always a broader revelation of himself. Okay? Good questions. Uh, I hope that's a little clearer in our thinking. Now... It looks like Jesus is winning everything. But he has said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you now. That should have 
disturbed the disciples a little bit. He had already told them a parable as they were approaching Jerusalem that there's going to be a delay. He told them a parable about a man going into a foreign country to receive authority to rule. And the reason was they supposed that the kingdom was coming immediately. That's what they had been offering. They supposed that was going to come immediately. And the Lord's introducing, slowing them down a little, introduces the concept of, of a delay situation. Now, how is this going to work out? From a human perspective, it looks like the tide has turned. Everything's coming up roses now. The crowds are for him. The Pharisees said the whole world is going out after him. On Tuesday, he had won every debate. And yet he gives the Olivet Discourse that talks about uh, another period of time someplace down the line when the gospel of the kingdom will be preached again just before the kingdom comes. Now what remains is how is this going to work out? How is the crowd that is now for him going to turn around and be against him? How will the same group that said on Sunday, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord, how will they be changed to say by Friday, we will not have this man to rule over us? There has to be a great change in public opinion for the Lord to have uh, executed what he has said was going to happen, the withdrawal of the kingdom, his crucifixion, all those things. That he's already alluded to. Now here's how it works out, I think. Just as Lazarus was the key player in having the triumphal entry crowd out there saying, Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is another key player who reverses their thinking. His name is Judas. Have you ever had any struggle saying, What's the big deal about the betrayal? They could have arrested him dozens of times before, humanly speaking. Why was the betrayal necessary? On Wednesday, the Sanhedrin is is gathered in a secret private meeting saying, what are we going to do? The whole world's going out after him. How are we going to get the crowd back on our side? How can this work? Caiaphas says, don't worry about it. It is sufficient that one man die for the people. And being a priest, he prophesied that year, that day, a strange statement coming from the primary antagonist of the Lord, the one who would preside over his trials. But he, he was settled that some way, That one man is going to die and the nation is going to be preserved in the status quo. And as they're trying to debate how this is going to work out, there's a knock at the door. And Judas comes in. And he says, I'll betray him. They enter into a pact of betrayal. Now, why does this become important? I'm going to give an illustration. There are no particular parallels in this that I'd like you to draw, but an illustration only. Do any of you 
Thankfully, in a group like this, I'll get an answer. When I ask the students at school this, they say, Huh? Yeah. Do any of you remember a man named John Dean? Okay, see? His beautiful blonde wife sitting behind him in those Senate investigations of what? Watergate. When did the Watergate story break? Before or after the election? Before. It was before. And we thought, oh, it's just a little political hanky-panky, right? Hey, this happens all the time. Does it happen all the time? No. <laughs> <laughs> happens all the time. Nobody gave a rip. The election, was that the one where only Massachusetts didn't go for Nixon? I think it was. He sent an ambassador to Massachusetts after he won. You know. It was a, a, a genuine landslide. And we thought, oh, political things going like this all the time. Uh, since then, we've had all sorts of gates. It's going to be with us forever, I guess. Yeah. Gate this, gate that, or blank gate, blank gate, blank gate. Nobody thought much of it until an insider came along and said, what you guys are saying is true, right? And then everything came to a screeching halt. I'm not even saying who's right or wrong in this thing. The government came to a halt. Nothing was happening. And the person who had been put in by a landslide, again by popular opinion, was forced to resign. Because an insider said the charges are true. And the man who up to that time had won a, an enormous Majority vote, only one state not going his way. I'll never forget watching in the lobby of a mass on television there that we had taken in. Never forget that departure scene from the White House. Do you remember that? The helicopter lifts off. That was a heartbreaking experience. No matter what your political persuasion that, that a, a president had to resign. That was a sad moment. The whole country had reversed its position because an insider said it was true. Here comes Judas. He's an insider. What was he agreeing with when he said, I take the side of the Sanhedrin? What had the Sanhedrin said? Here's a key question. What had the Sanhedrin said about Jesus? He does his miracles by Satan. He's a fraud. You can't trust this man. And I should know. I'm the treasurer. I know what goes on. I'm the most trusted one of the group. Can you see the page of the Jerusalem Gazette the next morning? After the betrayal? Trusted treasurer sides with Sanhedrin. The Messiah is a fraud. In remorse, he commits suicide. Case closed. It's perfect, isn't it? You couldn't want a better way to turn the tide of the people. And by the time Wednesday has come to an end, the Sanhedrin's licking his chops. We got him. Within a little bit of time, 
the one who witnessed against him, who will betray him, is dead. He'll never be able to say anything contrary to what the people have been told. It's a perfect setup. And uh, that story is going to be leaked out. And while Jesus is meeting with his disciples late Thursday night, the Sanhedrin starts putting into operation this whole betrayal plot, the communication to the whole community. And by the time Friday comes, the crowd will be saying, crucify him. This man tricked us. He's from the devil himself. Isn't that a genius scheme? And that whole last week hangs on two people. The resurrection of Lazarus and this groundswell of popularity and the betrayal of Judas that reverses exactly what had happened. But listen to what Peter says about it. Pontius Pilate and Herod and the nations and the Jews were gathered together to do whatever thy hand and thy counsel before determined to be done. Him being delivered by the determining counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye with your wicked hands have slain. Whose plan's being worked out? The Sanhedrin's? Well, they thought so. It's exactly what God wanted. Why? Why? Who killed Jesus? Do you know that song? Many years ago. Who is guilty of that crime so low? Was it Roman soldiers with their tools of war? Was it Hebrew children denying their king? There's a bigger picture, isn't it? When I think of Jesus dying on the tree, I realize it's for me he died. And this is just the way, just the way God worked out his eternal plan of salvation for each one of us. Kingdom is being withdrawn. The king is being rejected. Him being delivered by the determining counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye with your wicked hands are slain. And now there is salvation for all. Wonderful plan, isn't it? People call, the theologians call uh, the revelation of God a redemptive history. He reveals himself for redemptive purposes. And as we look at the life of Christ, we see all these events taking place. And we hear Jesus saying this, for this hour came I into the world. This is the plan. The lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. Aren't we glad for that? It, it is marvelous. There's a verse in Hebrews that I love. 
a rather minor verse. He did not take hold to help angels, but he took hold to help human beings. And the life of Christ is a history of that. In our next session, we'll look at the upper room discourse that takes place on Thursday night, late Thursday, while the plot's being hatched to have him betray. We'll look at the upper room discourse and then briefly at the crucifixion itself. Let's uh, close in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful that uh, we see your hand in history, that in the eternal counsel of the Godhead, you and Son and Holy Spirit mapped out a plan of redemption. We are thankful that that was executed exactly as you planned to bring salvation to each one of us and glory to yourself. And so we thank you and praise you that from such a terrible injustice has sprung eternal life for every one of us. We give thanks in your Son's name.